Thank you for joining us for the Colorado PGA's Elevation Podcast. I'm your host, Holly Champion, and I'm the section's Education and Membership Director. Our guest for this episode is the creator of Decade Golf, Scott Fawcett. A former collegiate golfer for Texas A&M, Scott's professional golf career never went as far as he wanted it to. An appearance in the 1999 U.S. Open and stints on the Web.com and Hooters tours, among others, led Fawcett to create a new strategy to help take his own game to the next level. When he regained his amateur status in 2013, Scott found himself at a crossroads. With an unrelenting drive to explore the untapped potential of golf strategy, Scott set out on a quest to crack the code. He realized he could create a spreadsheet combining shot patterns and expectations from various results and, in theory, solve golf strategy mathematically. Scott spent several months creating Decade, but was sidelined with an injury when it came time to use it for himself in the U.S. Mid-Am in the summer of 2014. As a result, he caddied for a junior golfer from his home course in Texas in order to test out the theories in a few events. That junior was Will Zalatoris, who won the Texas Amateur and U.S. Junior while Scott was caddying for him. Learn more about Scott's journey and the creation of Decade Golf in this episode of the Elevation Podcast. Thank you, Scott, with Decade Golf for joining me on today's podcast. We're going to explore a little bit about your decade system and then just kind of how it can help PGA professionals, junior golfers, and your average everyday players and talk a little bit about some course management strategies that sounds like you have got a pretty good handle on. So welcome. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you. I know uh, a lot of people tend to think that I work with only elite players, but over the last two and a half years since we introduced our foundations program, I've really started thinking a lot broader about the guy, you know, the 80 to 85 type shooter. So really got a lot of good stuff for them. Yeah, looking forward to exploring what that can do, whether you're shooting, hoping to shoot 69 or 99 or whatever that looks like. So should be good. Um, So tell me a little bit about yourself and how you kind of came up with Decade. Yeah, I've got definitely a decent background in math and kind of logical thinking, if you will, and obviously played professional golf. And, you know, it's so funny looking back, like Steve Jobs has a saying, you can only connect the dots looking backwards. And now I've got so many dots along this timeline. It's pretty funny, but luckily for me, Will Zalatoris, you know, I used to have to explain who he was, but at this point I don't anymore. Luckily he was a nine-year-old junior when he moved to Dallas and joined my country club. And just a kid that I've, you know, I had corn fairy status back when he first moved to Dallas. So I played a lot of golf with him when he was in his, you know, formative early teen years. And, uh, I, I just saw once the strokes gain statistics, I've played a lot of poker. And once the strokes gain statistics started being released, I just realized that with, shot pattern data with launch monitor data that I could kind of quantify the size, you know, without getting too mathy, the standard deviations of directional and distance control of a shot pattern, basically how big is the shotgun blast. And then if I know how many shots it takes to hole out from any given area, I can kind of start to, to, you know, create a system to solve course management because it really, it's the one area of the game. Well, the whole game is mystical and and elusive, but it's the one area that really there is a lot of folklore that is just not correct. And it's not like I'm coming out just trying to bash all these old cliches into the ground, but there's just a bunch like you got to play it over here to get this angle and you got to shape it both ways to get attack pins. Like there's just so much of that that is, it's just wrong. And it really comes down to the fact that shot patterns are simply massive relative to the size of the whole in golf (laughs) the hole is really small shot patterns are really big and thus i do think that basically all positive outcomes all the way through the pga tour are essentially luck but you can tiptoe in around and avoid bad luck so i just i just saw you know a lot of the other stats type guys just saw data and what how can we tell players where to improve and i was like i don't really care about that but i think we can use this to get around the golf course And honestly, looking back at my own game, I didn't really start specializing in golf. I mean, honestly, until I basically got to college, I played most other sports all the way through about ninth grade, really didn't get recruited by anyone. As a result, I played golf at Texas A&M after having a good freshman year at Sam Houston. But I really was just a guy who didn't have enough experience to learn how to play golf. Um, But I do have a lot of, I hate saying like talent, but I've got a lot of just physical skill. And so I just, I saw the use of the data as being how to learn how to 
play the game instead of how to find holes in people's games. So back to, you know, Zalatoris, I did all this work for my own game in 2013 and 14, creating a system for, for, you know, removing the emotion from decision-making. And then I got a cortisone shot in my right elbow the week before the Texas Salmon and the guy paralyzed my right arm for a couple of days. So I, called Will and I was like, dude, let me caddy for you next week. I can't play now. But you know, at the time he was 3,300 in the world had never won more than a high school golf tournament. And I go caddy for him in the Texas amateur, which it's not a huge event, but it's a big state and a lot of good golfers here. And he won by three. And I was like, wow, I didn't think that would work that easily. And so then obviously I went down and caddied for him when he won the U S junior. And then again, just more luck, luck, luck. I knew I've known Jason Enlow, the SMU coach at the time, since we were playing junior in college golf, he was at SMU when I was at A&M. And he told me, he's like, dude, Bryson fires at every single pin, DeChambeau, obviously I can't get him to stop. I think what you're doing with Will is some sort of a strategy deal. Can you teach it to him? And I was like, you know, sure. I, I really wasn't thinking much about it at the time. And so I, created an indoor seminar. Jason basically said it has to be done indoors because otherwise the NCAA will think you're a third paid coach. So I created an indoor seminar literally for Bryson. And uh, then he wins the NCAAs and US Amateur. And apparently now I'm a strategy expert. <laughs> so <laughs> that's kind of all true. But honestly, like it's, it's kind of funny to look back at it again and connect the dots. But if you'd asked me in 2014 and 15, I would have told you I'm a genius. It's all the math. It's the system. Yay me. And in looking back at it, what it really is, it's brain development in young players. You know, guys, shockingly, we're dumber than girls. We don't finish our brain development until we're 25. Girls usually around the age of 22. Y'all definitely are the decision makers uh, at, at a younger age, better decision makers, I should say. And so really, like we used to think that you'd have to get out on tour and flop around for a few years to figure out to learn all the shots and then that's why people started, you know, peaking in their early 30s. And at the end of the day, I really believe now you had to get out on tour, let your brain finish developing, then gain experience of what does and doesn't work. And then finally start figuring it out if you, in fact, ever actually do figure it out. I, I really do believe this at the end of the day. I think there are thousands and thousands of people who have the physical skills to play on tour. And what we've really removed is the elusive part. There aren't thousands and that, well, maybe there are, what do I know? Thousands and thousands of players with the physical skills to play in the NBA. I assume there's some really elite athletes that also happen to be really tall. And that's a bit of a survivorship bias. Whereas golf, you can kind of be any size and any shape and be pretty good at it. I think there's a lot of people with the skills. And then again, you just waste too many shots. And it's because you just don't have the experience to figure out how to play. And then I try not to rag on announcers too much, but then you hear them on TV when someone stuffs at me, like what a bold shot firing at that pin. It's like, you don't know where he was aiming. He might've been, but it's entirely possible they weren't. And that was just luck. And that's, you know, all of that makes the game really, really hard to learn how to play. And I'll say one more thing and then I'll shut up, but it really does come down to the fact that if if I told you I was playing basketball last night and I was at the top of the key and the guard switched onto me and I shot a turnaround jump shot, you kind of know what happened if you know anything about basketball. But if I told you I was 147 in the middle of the first fairway, should I fire at the pin? You're like, I have no idea. And, and the reason that that works that way is golf is kind of the only sport that really is played on a non-uniform field of competition. Every football court, every field, every tennis court, they're, they're all the same. Really, the only field the field that is a little bit different is baseball just because they've got different length outfields but it's still the same general idea and so you wind up getting lessons on the field of competition and you wind up just a, 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 an instructor being will say like in this situation this is going to happen and in golf you're getting lessons on a driving range and then you're expected to just go figure it out on the course and it just doesn't work. It, it's just set up for failure on so many different levels. Absolutely. Well, I, to your point, I mean, numbers aren't wrong, right? Numbers are never wrong. As long as you can do the math, know, correctly. <laughs> you know, as long as you can do the math correctly. And I, I really like your point too, of taking the emotion out of decisions. I personally was a very, very emotional junior golfer and, and college player. And it's like, you know, I, I get down into the mindset of crap. I just made a double on that last hole. I put it in the water, trying to move on. How do I take, okay, now I have to go for the pin, right? I have to go out and make birdies. I have to go out and race the double. And you start to get just kind of 
more bold without realizing it, but you know, those are the expectations. Ugh, I have to make birdie. I have to make birdie. Right. Yesterday's yesterday's an unbelievable example. Like I say all the time, you can't use game theory in golf for a variety of reasons. You just you don't have very good information of what's going on around you. Here Keegan Bradley is just yesterday and I I didn't watch it, but (laughs) someone sent me a DM like, what was Keegan doing on 11? I'm like. I don't know. So I go look at it. You can hear him and his caddy there. He's 190 to carry water. They're literally saying the ball's going to come out of here dead. He's in the rough. He has a three iron. Like there's so much stupidity going on in this shot. There's a lake that runs short all the way along the right. The green is angled like number 12 at Augusta. So it's kind of short left to long right, which works the opposite way of a right-handers shot pattern. And the caddy's like, well, we can just lay it up. And he's like, I'm, I'm going to get this three iron. And the caddy's like, okay, then at the bunker that is left of the green from his angle. And Keegan's just like, nah, I'm going to go just a little right of that. And he's kind of spinning the club. And the caddy's like, okay, caddy should have just been like, stop. They're like, wait, dude, no. Like, what are you trying to accomplish with this shot? He really didn't have a clear picture of exactly what he was trying to do with this shot. He's just like, I'm going to kind of go over there with a three iron from the rough in an acknowledged bad lie. They're trying to get a drop from casual water. Like everything about this is ridiculous. And then he fans it into the water. The key to that is, yeah, he was three or four shots back. He's thinking, I can't afford a bogey and still win. Like I get it. And at the moment I told him, guess what, Keegan, you're not going to win this week, but there's also no reason to just pitch a hundred grand or whatever out the window. And your opponent might make some mistakes coming in. I mean, Max home is obviously on a roll. He's, you know, not intimidated to win, but Keegan is trying to get God forbid a look at birdie, but he's trying to just trying to make a par. The key to that is he's trying to make a hole that yesterday, the scoring average on that hole was 4.57. Literally, the scoring average is over half a shot over par, and he's in one of the worst places you can be off the tee, and he's trying to do everything he can to squeeze par out of it. It's like, dude, not happening here. I mean, it might not even happen from the fairway, but it darn sure isn't happening from here. Just don't make double, and he just makes a just totally pointless double. And again, I'm saying this, Keegan, if you're listening, uh you're one of the best players in the world. You've made probably $47 million million more than I did on tour. I'm not saying you're an idiot, but that shot was emotional. And it's funny because I've got... I've got a couple of different announcers that give me a little bit of a hard time. And and, and one of the main ones, he's like, well, I played better with emotion. I'm like, you can't play better with emotion. You might play worse without emotion, but you can't play better than you are. I, I think that's just you. Maybe you again, I still doubt he actually rose to the occasion, but Tiger played the same intensity on number one as he did the 72nd hole. I bet that guy just had a tendency to not really get into it until he was in it late on Saturday. And then he's just got this bias of like, I play better with emotion. I'm like, no, you don't. You, you just literally can't play better golf than you're capable of. But emotion overrides and makes you make bad decisions, period. And yesterday was a perfect example of it. And you see it every single week on tour. And what's funny is the fact that I've got to argue as much as I do on social media about certain things. But without even getting into the who's the greatest of all time, Tiger or Jack commentary, it's one of those two. Then who are the two greatest course managers? Those are the only two names that are going to come up. And yet then I have to argue about how good course management is and that people think that it's common sense. I'm like, well, if it's common sense, then why were there two great ones? Out of how many thousands of tour players since Jack? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's not anybody that's the greatest at adding two plus two because it's four. That is common sense. So, no, there is nobody that's the greatest at two plus two. But there is somebody that's the greatest at course management. And it just happens to be the two best players in the history of the game, whichever way you want to go with it. Yeah. What's the common denominator there? (laughs) <laughs> bomb it and think your way around the course. Like, exactly. Yeah. Well, and I, I think to your point about tiger, I mean, I feel like his, just his intensity is always way, way, way up high, regardless of if he's cruising, you know, with a 10 shot lead or whether he's trying to fight down to the last 72nd hole, you know, his intensity is just always there, but that's his regulation emotion. Right. With his intensity, but it's also his focus. And this is where I used to, again, if you rewound this thing back, not even just six years ago, probably three years ago, I used to really get a little nervous talking about meditation and mindfulness because I was like, again, 
Colorado's kind of similar to California, but I used to my my little can joke is I used to feel like I should be in California selling avocado and sprout sandwiches when I talk about <laughs> mindfulness. Maybe a little bit in in Colorado too, but it really is that's the difference. And, and you know, and I've known a little bit about what he does. I mean, I'm really good friends with Como, and we've talked about it some, but obviously not much because he's you know got NDA stuff, but luckily over the last couple of years, Tiger has started making, I don't want to say some mistakes, but he started talking about it more. And, and when he'd gotten his car wreck, what he was doing in California, aside from being out there for Riviera, he was out there doing playing lessons with celebrities. And the day before his car wreck, he was actually with Jada Pinkett Smith on the course. And Jada, you know, said to him in like the fifth hole down the fairway, she's like, you know, you just look so focused and calm out there. She's like, you just look like you're like in a meditative state. And Tiger goes, well, that's exactly what it is. I, I try to play golf in a meditative state. She goes, oh, that's what I thought. That's so cool. Okay, that's perfect. Well, then you go forward another five minutes in the 23 minute video, whatever it is. And they're at like a little snack shop. And she's like, so what are your hobbies outside of golf? And he says, you know, I, I really like free diving. And he goes, Jada says, really free diving? Like, how deep do you go? And he's like, I'm like 80 feet. And she goes, oh, wow, you're a real free diver. And she goes, why do you like that so much? And he literally just, well, that circles back to that meditative state we were talking about earlier. You get yourself 80 feet in the water. You've got to learn to control your heart rate, control your thinking. If you get yourself in a problem, you better not freak out. You're 80 feet underwater. Like, you better know what you're doing and how you're doing it and why. And she goes, oh, wow, that's so cool. Like, when did you start meditating? And this is the best part. His answer, she goes, when did you start meditating? He, kind of, he just smirked. He's like, when I was born? Like, it wasn't, it was a joke how long he's been doing. And she goes, wow, how's that? And she goes, well, my mom with her Buddhist background, like my dad, Green Beret, like that's just the way I was raised. And I was having this conversation actually with someone about two weeks ago. And they're like, you know, I feel like he said something about that in his interview with Tom Rinaldi, the first interview after the disaster, the one that he did on the back of Lake Nona, I think it was. And Tom said, you know, well, how are you going to be a better person moving forward? And Tiger said, well, you know, I got away from my core values. I stopped meditating. I didn't, I, you know, I got away from my Buddhist principles. It was just a literally a four second. I've watched that interview back then, but I didn't catch it because I wasn't looking for it. And now going back, it's like, wow, there it is. He And I kind of know the timeline a little bit. He stopped you know, meditating a couple of years after his dad died. And then obviously all of his personal life situation. And he just got to where he was too busy and it just dropped. And you can see it in his demeanor on the course. You can just see it in every aspect of him. But then you go to the 2019 Masters and that was just a clinic. That dude was in a moving meditation the entire day. And, and the reason I'm more comfortable talking about now is, hey, Tiger talks about it. So, hey, people, if I'm here for peak performance. If you don't want to talk about peak performance, then shut it off. That's what the best performers do. And as toxic as social media is, it actually does give us a huge avenue for, for information into what other great performers do. And there's a guy named George Mumford that's got, a, I can't remember, the Mindful Athlete, I think is what it's called. But here's a guy that has worked with Kobe, Jordan, LeBron, Pete Carroll, Phil Jackson, Pat Riley, like the names of all names of dynasties. And here's a guy that teaches meditation to all of them. You would not have known that 20 years ago. It would have, we, I mean, again, we literally thought, I remember this in the late nineties, early two thousands, we thought Tiger was playing golf hypnotized hundred percent thought it was like pocket watch in your face, hypnotized, <laughs> <laughs> which looking back at it, it's actually not far from what it is and was. Um, but that's where the main thing, when I start talking to people, we're working with people like that's, that's the number one priority. I mean, I'm, I turned 40, I turned 49 in two months. And I'm trying to get my game back in shape for the champions tour. And people always ask me like, what should I do to get better? And I'm always like, well, here's what I'm going to do. So like, if you don't think that this is what I value the most, my first and foremost uh, objective is a, is a, con a consistent meditation routine. Not, I mean, 10 minutes a day, Sam Harris has an amazing app called waking up. The reason I think it's better than any of the other apps, all the other, I'm sure they've gotten better, but historically they're just like, follow your breath. And then you just like, okay, go about your day. Sam really explains to you how to take this. They call it like, you know, you have to take the yoga off the mat. You've got to take the meditation off the cushion. He teaches you how to take that into your life. And this isn't just about golf. This is about relationships, work, school, marriage, parenting. Like it will help just giving a little bit of space between input and response I mean, even just milliseconds can change your life from saying something like, oh, shit, I wish I didn't say that. Just <laughs> learning to have a little bit of uh, 
of space between thought and reaction. Um, so number one for me is that number two for me is speed control and lag putting. And that's only because I already hit the ball really far. If I didn't hit the ball really far, that would be my number one priority and lag putting would be two. So it's some iteration of those two. And then I hate saying this, the rest of it kind of just falls in line. I mean, shot patterns on approach shots are simply huge. And yeah, there's some guys that are better with wedge players. Keep working on your game. I'm not saying that at all, but the rest of it is just so hard that it really does just require variance. That's why you don't win very often in golf. It's why you just set up the cards and you just sit back and let the percentages play out. But this is where guys are always like, I want to win. I'm like, I get it. And you're probably not going to this week. There's 144 other guys that want to win or 143 other guys that want to win this week. If you have a two or 3% win rate on tour, that is the equivalent of winning every, you know, 30 to 50 starts ish that's winning every year and a half. That's, that's an incredible, a mind boggling career. And it's the equivalent of pulling the ACE of spades out of a deck of cards on any given week. Exactly. That can't be the goal. It just literally can't be the goal because that's what gets in the way and starts making emotional Keegan Bradley style decisions. I mean, so to that point, you know, following the data of what your win percentages and things are, what what is the goal if it's not i'm going to enter and try to win this tournament you know i'm i'm going to win okay. obviously the goal is obviously to win but that can't be the focus i guess the goal you know goals i just i don't like outcome goals i like process goals outcome goals hit more fairways hit more greens like all that's kind of like duh to me like you just want to always be getting better i just and this is where like strokes gain looking at where your strokes gained are against the competition like no you want to be gaining strokes against yourself that's like the definition of improvement so i just want people to set process goals if i do X, Y, and Z. If I practice my wedges, if I run the speed drill from the decade app six times a week, and you know, if it, those are the goals that will result in a certain amount of outcomes, but also it's entirely possible to, I mean, the, the make rate on tour from 18 feet is 20%, one in five. It's really, really, really possible like if you don't do a, a one in five occurrence in five tries, it's not that interesting. You start getting to 10 or 12. It's like, wow, that's really weird. I feel like I'm due, but it's just actually mathematically, it's not that shocking. And so you can literally stripe it to 18 feet for an entire round of golf and walk off at two under and feel like you put it awful. And it's like, no, that actually was, I mean, it wasn't great, but it really wasn't that bad either. And so you really are just, it's kind of tongue in cheek, but it's not, but it really is easier to avoid losing shots than it is to intentionally gain shots. You really can tiptoe around. And the problem is the penalties tiger simply did not have massively negative shots and those negative strokes gain uh, just for anyone. So just to explain strokes gain, since it's so simple, an eight foot putt on tour is 50, 50. It takes them one and a half strokes on average to hole out from eight feet. So strokes gained is if I make an eight foot putt, I've moved the ball one and a half strokes closer to the hole in one stroke. So I gain a half a shot. If I two putt it, I should have, you know, you can't hit the ball one and a half times. So I've now moved it one and a half strokes closer to the hole in two putts. I've lost a half a shot and we know how many strokes it takes to hole out from every inch on the golf course. And so you're taking these starting expectation values and comparing it to the resulting expectation values. And that's how many strokes you gained or lost tiger simply on approach shots. He just, I mean, saying never is not correct, but he rarely hit shots that lost more than a half a shot. And really anytime you've got like a gap wedge from 110 yards and you miss the green, it's going to be a, a negative, at least a third to, if not a half a shot. And those are the kind of mistakes that he just never made. And, and part of that, Again, it's tongue in cheek. Stop trying to make birdies. It's it's a joke, but you really aren't trying to make birdies. Birdies just will kind of happen. Um, you you happen to be aiming a little bit away from a pin, and you happen to pull or push it close. You happen to make a eighteen footer. Like there's just birdies will just be there, but you can intentionally avoid mistakes more. And you know this always all circles back to these these five things we track in the foundations version of the decade app. It, what we call the Tiger Five. 
How many bogeys did you have on par fives? How many doubles? How many three putts? Tiger tracked how many bogeys with nine iron or less. We changed that to bogeys from inside 150 for guys and 130 for girls. And Tiger tracked how many blown easy saves he had, which is obviously subjective to his opinion. So we changed that to two chips. These five things are literally what Tiger was out there. When Tiger's tracking his stats, it wasn't fairways and greens. It was how many of those five did I have? And he knew that if he could keep those five, not to none, to six or less per tournament, he'd win. And that's basically the exact number it takes. Like it's, I have no idea how he came up with those numbers. And, and the fact that six is spot on correct is really bizarre. But now think about it. Every time you finish around a golf and think you should have shot lower, it's not because you think you should have hit that three iron close or made that 30 footer or even two putted from 70 feet. It's the chip shot you didn't hit very good to 18 feet. And you're like, oh, I don't want to make bogey here. And you jam that five feet past and you miss it coming back. And you walk off a double and it's like, what just happened? That's the shot after the round. And the thing about missing a five footer comebacker, five foot make rate on tour is 77%. But that's not even five feet. That's four foot, one inch to five feet. It's literally like a four and a half footer is... 75%. The sure. four footer is three foot, one inch to, to four feet. And it's only 88%. That's barely longer than your putter and tour players miss more than one in 10. Well, I want to highlight that too, is all of the stats that you're kind of rattling off here are tour stats, yeah. not, not your everyday, you know, even your club champions. These are your tour stats. Lou Stagner used to do some great work for me. He's a great follow on Twitter. It's S T A G N E R. And it's just amazing that he's working with Arcus now. So he's got access to a ton of amateur data and you know, the PGA tour, it's 165 ish yards in the fairway is where they average three shots the whole out a scratch golfer pretty darn good golfer that's 94 yards in the fairway if a scratch is 98 and someone says you want to pick it up for three they would be well served to do it which <laughs> is <laughs> like it's it's comical honestly yeah. because the scratch is pretty good at golf well like, that's, it's insane there's so there's such a huge difference between a scratch golfer and a tour player too Oh, seven shots. I mean, yeah. You you think about I you think about your your regular really really good club level player. Your good club level amateur. They're going to make a run at their club championship every year. They're going to make a run at maybe their senior club championship or their member guest, you know, championship flight, things like that. It's like you've got great stats. You need to look at your stats according to the tour player stats. And then kind of work on your expectations from there. Like you are not Tiger. You're not Zalatoris. You're not DeChambeau. Look at your stats versus your expectations and where that gets you. I mean, you made a really good point too, is what I'm hearing when you talk about mitigating those, the Tiger five, it's like damage control, right? I, my coaches in college did the same thing. You're like, okay, you get stuck behind a tree. Let's figure out how to not be stuck behind a tree for the second time. Like, don't try to thread it through the tree line and go for that little sliver of green that you can see 150 yards down the fairway. How about you just punch it out and take your bogey? Maybe if you're lucky, you get it in for par, but figure it out. I hope these stats come across okay in audio because I know Joe Rogan is always like, keep in mind, people aren't watching, but some of these stats are just amazing. A hundred yards in the trees because they've got ways they can figure out if you're in the trees or not on tour. They average 3.8 shots to hold out from a hundred yards in the trees. Now, if you think about that strokes gain math, they're basically making eight bogey. They've already hit their tee shots. So they're averaging 4.8 on the hole. It's 3.8 from that point forward. A hundred yards in the fairway, they average 2.8 shots to hole out. So if you think back to that strokes gain math, we're 3.8 in the trees. We could pitch it out sideways to 2.8 in the fairway. We've moved it one shot closer to the hole in one shot. Tour players are so bad from the trees. They could pitch it out sideways in almost all circumstances, and it wouldn't hurt them. That's, I mean, there's just things like that where it's like, again, now you're a four at home, a 12 at home, and you're just, just get it out of the trees. I mean, literally just get it out of the trees. I get it. If you're hitting it in the trees 14 times around, that's not ideal. You need to work on your driver, not your punch out game. <laughs> and that's the thing. I mean, again, but it all, it holds true through so many different um, avenues. I mean, Zalatoris, you know, again, I love the guy like a son, but 
yeah, okay, cool. He struggles on his short puttings. If you could see the DMs and tweets I get thrown at me, like, why don't y'all fix his putting? Like, have you not noticed his putting sucks? I'm like, well, last year on tour, he was minus 0.06 strokes gained for the season. He was basically dead on tour average. He was 122nd on tour last year. There's a hundred other guys you should be telling, why don't we fix your putting before Zalatoris? And again, I get it. It's not ideal, but... He had the 18th best speed control on tour last year. The guy lag puts the ball really well. And here's the key for a guy like Will. Sure, it's not great when he has a three to five footer, but this is what's really weird. Nobody on tour is 10% worse than average, which if you think of Steph Curry in the NBA, I guarantee you there's guys in the in the NBA that shoot free throws or three-pointers more than 10% worse than him. It just doesn't – like it's, it's weird how – uniform it is ish but then most importantly you only have two and a half attempts per round from three to five feet and again he's not 10 percent worse from three to five feet but even if he was if you're 10 percent worse on something that happens two and a half times it's a quarter of a shot it's not ideal but it's also not the end of the world it's only the end of the world if and when you take that into the next hole or next shot and you're pissed off that's again the emotional expectation stuff that we've been talking about all along. Like, hmm, yeah, I get it, buddy. That sucks. You just missed a three and a half footer. Let's tap it in and go on to the next hole. Cause we, you know, again, it's it is like a utopian view, but there's nothing we can do about it. You can only move forward. And again, it really is people ask me why he's so good. I mean, like, I've just never seen a more resilient kid in my entire life. And part of that goes into missing a short putt. And just walking to the next hole like it didn't even happen. I mean, it's really incredible how good of a job he does with that. But again, I really think it's important for people to realize, like, you can't be more than 10% worse than tour average. <laughs> I just, I do. I think that's really, really shocking. Yeah, for sure. That's a, that's a pretty tight percentage, I'd say. I mean, yeah. to your, I mean, to your credit, looking at the NBA and and some other sports, you can get way worse than ten percent. <laughs> yeah, way worse than, <laughs> way than worse. league average <laughs> for sure. So, our uh, our listenership is pretty broad here in Colorado. So we've got quite a few PGA professionals, teaching professionals. We've also got junior golfers, your average golfer, club level uh, golfers, and things like that. How? How can such a broad population use Decade or find out more information about Decade? Well, so again, there's no sugarcoating. This was designed for elite tournament golf. I, I own an electricity company. I played professional golf. I started an electricity company in 2002, which I still own and run. Like that's technically my day job. This has turned into a really fun side job um, that obviously I'm trying to make my actual job. But for the first three or four years of selling the app, like we had the elite version of what we called light, but light in total honesty was nothing more than a placeholder to get it in the app store. But in late 2019, you know, we were just kind of looking at some analytics in the app. Cause I like to say we've made money in spite or been done well in spite of ourselves, not because of ourselves, because we've just tried to make the app as good as possible. Finally, end of 2019, we're starting to get a pretty good feel. Of the app was almost done ish. We just kind of keep adding bells and whistles, but I was like, you know, what kind of users do we actually have? I literally had no idea. It's like, wow, there's a lot of people who shoot 85 and enter every shot, like sh a shocking amount. Like they're, the golf nerd runs strong in all of us. <laughs> and so there's a lot more data heads out there too than I ever would have possibly appreciated. Um, but that was when I realized I needed to do a better job of serving like that population. So we started working on what we call decade foundations. And the goal of that was to, rather than you just get all of the content, you know, there's about seven or eight hours of tutorial content in the decade app. That's just like, here's how the system and psychology and practicing like every literally aside from the mechanics of swinging um, here's everything about the game and how you use yardage books. There's literally everything. And you used to get all that on day one, which you still do with the elite version. But now we've got foundations where I break it up into like six hour and a half chunks. So you get it every three weeks. The goal initially was to have it be every month. And then when the, when the pandemic started, we literally released it on Valentine's Day of 2020. A couple of weeks later, the pandemic sets in. And I was like, well, just to give everybody something to do, I'll release the content every two weeks. And I was like, oh, no, I haven't made it yet. <laughs> so, <laughs> 
<laughs> Oops. I, I said I was going to do it and then realized I need to start making it. Um, but that content is designed with like an 82 to seven shooter in mind. I, I, you know, if you shoot over 90, it's a, it's dense. There's no doubt about it. That said, when I had COVID, I uh, started having a lot of blood pressure issues. And so we did all kinds of EKGs and blood tests and just all kinds of everything. Now, I still am not a cardiologist, but by going through all of that, I've gone from a 20 handicapped cardiologist to probably like a five. And I accomplished that in like six hours. I certainly wouldn't want to operate on anyone. And I certainly haven't gone to medical school, but I understand quite a bit about blood pressure and, uh, and, and veins, if you will, that's probably not in there. Cardiologists like, that's not how you'd say it, but I'm, I'm a six. <laughs> I do think that even if you shoot in the nineties and I'm not just really trying to sell here, I, I get emails every single day from people like, wow, I'm used to average 95 and I'm already down to 85. We, we've got something that we run in the test as we start trying to quantify people's improvement. We take the first three scores they enter in the app and we treat that as their baseline. And then we let it go 120 days because that's basically how long it takes you to get through the, the broken up content. And then we take your next five scores and compare them relative to 72 because we don't have the course ratings and everything. So we just treat 72 as a static number. And our users that begin in the 80s, they improve by 34% relative to 72 so if you get an 85 shooter, that's 13 shots over 72, 34% of that's four and a half shots, literally in 120 days. That's our, our average user. Wow. It, I, I really hate saying it because like, it sounds like snake oil, but you, you just can't get worse. Again, I try to be somewhat respectful, but like golfers, we're just idiots. Like it's such <laughs> an emotional game where we really just want to score and we want to force things. And the, the challenge is, we don't get to play that much, um, most people. And so every time you show up, you want to play good. Mm -hmm. But by definition, half the time, you're going to play worse than your average, literally by definition. And so it's about turning those worse rounds into more of your average score. And the word quit is a pretty offensive word. But when you, if you're an 80 shooter, when you shoot like 87 or 8, you quit somewhere along the way. You either abandoned strategy, you tried to force some things to get it back, you just checked out for three holes. Like, again, quit's the wrong word. It's not like I'm saying you're a pouting quitter, but you quit on some something, especially if you're like a college kid that's averaging 70 to 74. When you start shooting in the high 70s, you got frustrated and quit somewhere along the way. Your physical skills did not just abandon you, you know, 95% of the time in those rounds. Those are the rounds that we're really trying to keep closer to your average, which then again, by definition, will bring your overall average down. But more importantly, your low rounds don't change. People, people think that like trying to force birdies will lead to more birdies and lower and, and more variance it just doesn't. I mean, period. You have to think of shot patterns as like a Venn diagram where you've got those overlapping circles. And if one of them is centered directly over the hole and one of them is centered five yards right of that, the two overlapping circles still contain a lot of the same shots. You're just trading out the left side of one for the right side of the other. And that's usually going to result in fewer bogeys, which again, that's so much of this, like you get to keep on proving out more and more of it with the math behind the scenes. So as your scoring average improves through the 70s, 70 to 80% of your reduction in score is from bogey and higher avoidance, which again, dovetails perfectly into the idea that like this game is about avoiding mistakes way more than it is about doing great stuff, it, which is funny again, because you, you'll hear that in every PGA Tour locker room. This is what we do. And then they don't try to do it. You know, there, there is one thing I do think, you know, another stats guy one time said that, you know, the best players on tour make the most birdies. And I think that sentence needed a comma because they can, not because they're trying to. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And again, this is where it's tongue cheek. Like, I, I know they're trying to birdie every hole, but if they were trying to birdie every hole, then that would mean that they're literally aiming at every pin. Like if you were actually out there like trying to force birdie on every hole, you would be trying to hit it at every single pin. Even though, again, I'm telling you that would not result in more birdies, but that's what trying to birdie every hole looks like. And that's just not what they're doing out on tour. Again, these guys aren't total idiots. They play for the most part with proper strategy and mindset, but they make a lot of emotional mistakes. That's how 
it's the reason I work with like 50 guys on tour now. It's how I'm able to take a guy like Keith Mitchell and he had missed seven of his prior 11 cuts leading into the CJ cup this year. That's the first place I worked with him. He literally is playing pretty much awful golf. He had had seven top 12s in his first 105 starts on tour. He has six now in his last 11 since we started working together. And he's just like, I know I was playing good. He's just, yeah, you're just out there trying to force things. You're trying to work the ball to both ways too much. He's tries to make every single putt. And it's, it's so funny to take a guy like that and be like, Hey, why don't you leave some short? Stop trying to make putts. And this guy has literally been negative strokes game putting in essentially every single season on tour. The first two events this year, he was negative two per round in each round, which is literally impossible. It's so bad. And now if you could control out those two rounds, he's like in the top 10 in strokes game putting. And my advice to him was let's work on our lag putting and let's try to leave some short. (laughs) Yeah. It's so insane. Well, and I, to your point too, is it's like these guys have the opportunity to really know their game, right? You know, they know and using a lot of your data, which I'm curious, I'll have you answer this in a sec, but I want to know, you've been doing this for almost 10 years. How much data do you have? I mean, <laughs> more than I could possibly need. But what's funny is like for, my, for a guy like Keith Mitchell, his agent literally called me after this second week of the year this week. Adam Shank had hit me up on Twitter and, you know, I had a couple, you know, again, I had two, three hours worth of conversations over the course of a week. And he went out and had his first 54 hole lead ever and finished third. And, it, and Keith Mitchell's agent reaches out and he's like, I'm sick and tired of seeing you post about working with guys for the first week ever and then go out and play good. I've got a guy that's a world beater. What does this look like? I'm like, honestly, dude, it just takes two or three hours. I don't even charge most of these guys because it just doesn't take much time. And, you know, I'll sell app, you know, by, by using their name, like it's fine. He's like, okay, it's Keith. I'm like, oh, wow, that's actually interesting. I've always heard he's an amazing ball striker and whatever. And I'd never looked at his stats. I don't look at anyone's stats. And I get in there, I'm like, well, he's such a world beater. He's literally the best driver of the golf ball in the last five years on, on the planet. And then he's basically negative strokes gain approach. And and this is what's funny. And I this is another part of the reason I don't charge these guys. I can't get fired. So I can be extremely <laughs> blunt. Maybe, maybe you've noticed, but I literally get on the on a call with him. I'm like, okay, dude. So you're telling me you can hit the driver, which I don't care what the golf historian folklorists think. It's the hardest club to hit well on the bag. It's the longest shaft with the flattest face being swung the hardest. Hey, sure, it's easier to hit than an old driver, but it's the hardest club to hit well on the bag. And I have to tell a guy like that. So you're telling me you can hit the hardest club in the bag better than anyone on the planet. And you can't hit a green with a gap wedge. Like I'm not believing that. <laughs> and so, you know, we go through target selection. It's not as simple as middle of the green. Cause it's just not, I mean, greens are all different sizes and shapes and approach shot distances are all, like, it's not as easy as middle of the green, but we got like, they're like, Hey, show me, you can hit the green with a gap wedge and show me you can leave some putts short. He was 16 under through 27 holes with a five shot lead and he finished third, which, you know, sure. I would love for him to win, but he Rory won and Morikawa finished second. Like they're really good at golf. It's just funny to take a guy like that. And this wasn't like two months later, it was Jackson Vegas or Vegas Jackson CJ cup. And so he'd gone like miscut, miscut, abysmal, abysmal third. And it's like, sometimes it is that easy. Like, again, if you feel like you should be shooting lower scores, you're probably right. And it's, again, I, I do feel like snake oil sells them, but like, it's just not that hard to clean up once it, well, it is, it's really, really hard to do. It's easy to say, <laughs> yeah, it's really, really hard to do uh, again, but that's, you know, again, not to keep bagging on Keegan Bradley, but he just perfect example of it yesterday. I mean, you know, you get him, but it's, it's, it's veterans, it's juniors, it's everything. Like Stuart Sink is the exact same. He's one month older than me. He, he did not, he does not know who I am, but we played some junior golf and college golf together. <laughs> and I saw last year, you know, uh, I don't think winning on tour is a given, but if you're good enough to keep your card for 25 years, you should be winning some. He had gone 12 years without winning a golf tournament and, you know, since winning the British. And it's just comical to me. Like I saw a little sale come across my my computer a couple of years ago and it's a Stuart Sink. And I sent it to my program. I'm like, can you tell me anything about this guy? And he's like, yeah, the IP address is out of Ponte Vedra. I'm like, wow, that's hilarious. And he won the next week on tour in Napa. Wow. 
And so here's a guy that hadn't won in 12 years. And so then he goes on and wins again at Harbortown and he was on PGA tour radio and they're asking him about decade. Again, I've still never met Stewart. I've never spoken to him. This is not a paid endorsement, but they're asking, they're like, well, what, what happened? He's like, you know, I fired my caddy and I was going to have Reagan come out and caddy for me. So I was just, I just Googled course management, trying to find anything as like a starting point found decade. I've got a little test to have people run. He's like, I went out and did it. My shot pattern with my nine iron was the exact size he said it would be. I'm like, that's interesting. Had Reagan watch all the content, went all in and won the next week. I'm like, again, here's a 47 year old dude who's been out on tour for 25 years. And he even said, he's like, it's not like I didn't know this. It just clarified everything for me. Right. Here's a Georgia Tech engineering smart dude. Yeah. Really good at golf. And he just didn't even quite put it together. It really is bringing poker math and mindset into the game at the end of the day. Well, I think having the privilege of watching your presentation before at our teaching a coaching summit, um, you, you had something in your presentation that I really, really liked and it's applicable to that story. It's math is hard. No, hang on. Interpreting math is hard. Yeah. So it's like he understood the data. You understand the data. It's just being able to interpret it and then apply it to your next round of golf is the the hard part. I mean, that's it exactly. I mean, again, like I can teach you decade in, in 10 minutes flat, but it takes six hours of content to, to get you to understand why we're doing all of this. I mean, the main thing that I, if there's anything that I do feel like I've brought to the game that's different, it's this idea. And, and you, I do think you have to get to a certain point in the game where you even realize how dumb this thought is, but it's, you know, a tour player, they're, again, they're not idiots. I say that as a joke, but they're, you know, they're, they're, they're really good at golf, but let's say that they're out there with a seven or an eight iron and the pin is four yards from the left edge. They know to aim that five or six yards out to the right, which they do. And then they hope they pull it. That's in, but the deal is you've never stood on a driving range and thought, I hope I pull this 20 feet. And right. yet literally tour players do that. I mean, half on half their approach shots. And I firmly believe that's where outlier shots are born. You, you've just never stood on a driving range and thought, I hope I pull it. So now you're out there on a hard ish shot with a tucked pin and you're putting a swing on it that you've never really practiced. It's, it's really, it, again, it's, I feel like a 90 shooter sitting at home be like, they do what? That's ridiculous. It'd be like Steph Curry, like aiming away from the basket. Like that's so dumb. It's mind boggling. I, I gave this presentation. It was a top 50 in the world player a couple of years ago down in Miami. And I got to that point where I'd say, you know, aim away from it. And he just sat back in his chair and he kind of started laughing. And I was like, I don't know if you're laughing because this is so dumb or because you're so dumb. And he was like, oh, it's because I'm so dumb. He's like, I do that seven times around. I know it's a bad idea, but I've never wanted to face the music on how bad of an idea is it. And then there's Tiger. And I've got a video up on my YouTube channel that I post out on Twitter all the time where they had him in the booth during the hero saying, you know, Tigers, you've gotten older. Do you play more aggressively or more conservatively? And Tiger's answer was, well, you know, oh, I've always played very aggressively, 100%, but I play aggressively to my spots. And so wherever I wherever I decide on that spot to be, which may be still on the conservative side, I'm playing aggressively to it. And I'm like, wow, this dude's so good at it. He doesn't even understand the question. The question wasn't, are you playing smart golf? The question is, are you firing at pins? And he's just like, yeah, I play super aggressive at conservative targets. And again, that's the Rotella. Again, Rotella, they've got it right. Cocky swing, conservative target. I hate conservative target because middle of the green is often just as bad as right at it. But... Uh, you've got to attack that spot wherever you choose it to be. And that's just what most people do not do. Again, that's going back to Zalatoris that year in 2014. I don't know what made me, th I really sat down for like a week and thought, what did I do wrong? And how can I help a junior golfer not do that wrong? Again, this wasn't a goal of being a strategy expert. I just want to help a kid that I've watched get his face kicked in. And one of the main things I thought I was like, dude, I know that, I used to aim, you know, aim at decent targets and then hope I pull or push it. Like that's to me, the main thing I need to get this kid. When I give you a target, it's most likely not going to be the pin. And I need you to really try to put it there and then trust the variance of your shot pattern. We literally took the week before we sat out on the driving range at bent tree here in Dallas. And I just had him hit literally 200 balls through the bag at the exact same target. And I just plotted left and right. I didn't have a, a, a launch monitor at the time. I just plotted left and right just to illustrate to him. You, you just about blanket your shot pattern, half left and half right of your target. 
And I'm making him just observe that. Like, so I don't need you to aim here and hope you pull it. Like that's going to happen accidentally half the time. That's, that's going to work. And again, God bless the kid. He literally went out there and pulled it off perfectly. I, I told him, and again, as, as we've now seen the kids, a stripe show, I explained to him before we teed it up. I'm like, here's how this is going to work. You're going to hit a ton of greens. You're going to hit some par fives and two. We're going to try to two putt our face off, not make dumb mistakes. And you should shoot about 10 under, I think, on this course. And he literally shot 10 under. He hit <laughs> 60. I think it was like 63 greens in regulation and six or seven par fives and two. He basically like net hit. A hundred percent of greens and regulation. Wow. It was literally incredible. And then, you know, he just made a couple and had a whole bunch of dumb pars. And I mean, again, I've told people this, but like I getting a cortisone shot and paralyzing my arm was literally the most, the luckiest thing ever because it was on about the seventh or eighth hole, the first round. And I'm like, this is so dumb. He can for sure play more aggressively. I'm just watching him put it to like 15 feet, 20 feet. I'm like, this is so ridiculous. But he was like one or two under, and I'm like, let's just play it out. And he shoots like 68, and I'm like, that was really easy. Like, I for sure, if I were just playing, I would have thrown it in the trash can by the turn. I'd been like, this is so dumb. (laughs) I'm done. And literally would have never thought twice about it. It is comical how, I mean, literally getting a cortisone shot in my hand or arm where the guy paralyzed my hand essentially changed the, the, the outcome of my entire life. Yeah. It is lucky mistake. <laughs> yeah, and I'm just going to sit around and say the same two-hour spiel for the next ten years until I sign out. <laughs> <laughs> well, for what it's worth, it's a really great two-hour spiel. Having seen about a two and a half-hour presentation from you, it's good. Well, thank you. So. Well, good stuff. Well, Scott, I really appreciate your time. I think we've gotten a lot of really helpful ideas, helpful data from you. Um, I'm going to start calling you the data captain because that's just oh, perfect. That's what you do. And it's I think it's mind blowing. I've always been kind of a math person myself. And your your system is it's really, really good. I would encourage Thank anybody you. and everybody who's interested to check out Decade Golf and Scott Fawcett. Follow him you know, on Twitter. He's a really entertaining follow as well. <laughs> the only thing I'll add to it is just for parents is because it is so hard to watch your kid just keep making the same mistake over and over and over again. And back to that prefrontal cortex stuff that we had talked about earlier, I, I get tons of parents when a kid comes to the seminar, gets the app and they're like, gosh, Bobby still did this stupid thing. I'm like, yeah, that, now they're figuring it out. They're still going to make the same mistakes, but well, it's, it's Sam Burns. I mean, he's a perfect example. I worked with him when he was a junior, when he was number one in the world and he went off to school his freshman year at LSU. And he called me that Christmas. He's like, I got to play more aggressive than this to win at this level. I'm like, knock yourself out, dude. But you know, don't forget my number. If you, if you, if you see, you know, it didn't work. He played a little bit better that spring, but I got a phone call from him that summer. And he was like, dude, I have made the same mistake three weeks in a row. I would not have noticed it if I didn't know decade, but I see it now I'm all in. And I made these packets for him every year of his sophomore year. He wins the Nicholas trophy and, you know, go straight through the corn Ferry tour on the PJ tour. But here's a kid that he knew everything. He knew it all. And he had had success with it, but he still got to the next level. And that's what I see my college players turning on the tour players just so consistently. They just feel like they've got to do more at that next level. Yeah. But the point is just for the parents, like help the kids you know, just be like, Hey, did you notice this? And it, it didn't work. Cause they'll start once they understand the premise even though they don't have a functioning brain yet, they'll start to put it together quicker and eventually stop making the same mistake. Sure. Yeah. It's the realization that this is happening or that this is a pattern that can really help a ton of players. Exactly. So cool. Well, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. 